So glad you could be with us. As you know, those who are watching at home in an apartment, hey, we are open. Glad to have you uh, to come here and worship with us here at 2nd at 11.11. Listen, today is a very special day. We have a very special guest speaker. Uh, he is an author. He is a keynote speaker in demand across the country. He uh, served our country as a U.S. Congressman from the state of South Carolina for four terms. He was head of the Benghazi Investigation Committee. Uh, he's a great guy. He's been a personal friend of mine and our families for close to 30 years now. And uh, he is seen on, you know, Fox News, CNN, CBS, you name it. He is there. And he's a great guy. He's an honest guy. And he's a guy uh, who is a, uh, a voice of reason in a country that really needs that right now. So I want to ask you to join me in giving a warm Texas welcome to South Carolina's finest Congressman Trey Gowdy. There's something that's been um, on my mind lately that I want to share with you. I first want to say our country is going through an unprecedented time in a number of different ways. But I want to offer you a word of hope. We have been through difficult times before. And we have emerged stronger and more unified. Uh, we're going to be fine. We're going to fight and love and reason our way through this. Amen. So do not lose hope. I, I guess it was a couple of months ago, there was a report that our country was on the verge of going to war with either Norway or Denmark or maybe Iceland, Dr. Young, over, over Greenland. And I don't know, it just bothered me. It mainly bothered me because I thought somebody was going to ask me to find those three countries on a map. So I was incredibly nervous because I don't think I could find any of the three on a map. But be that as it may, I'm nervous. I'm going to bed. I'm thinking about, you know, I used to be in a position to maybe help our country work its way through some of these challenges. And, you know, the Lord has a sense of humor. You leave Congress, but he's going to send you a dream that includes some of your former colleagues. And this does feel like home to me. Now, when you're home, uh, you ought to feel free to share things that are bothering you. And this dream bothered me. And if there's a psychiatrist here tonight and you want to meet me afterwards and tell me what this dream means, I'd be thrilled to hear it. I'm going to share it with you. And then we're going to talk about something else. But I got to get this off, off my chest. In my dream, three of my former colleagues... Uh, John Boehner, Lindsey Graham, and Marco Rubio were all tragically killed when lightning uh, struck a strip, mall, a strip mall where they were taking a hot yoga class. <laughs> yeah, good luck getting that image out of your mind. <laughs> but tragically, they all three died, and they went to heaven, all three of them, which could happen. Two of them for sure, but in my dream, all three of them went, and they were greeted by St. Peter, and St. Peter said, look, you're big shots on earth, but this is heaven, the rule's in heaven. You're going to follow the rules, or there are going to be consequences. Well, John Boehner is the first one to violate the rules of heaven. He broke into a CVS and stole some cigarettes and some self-tanning lotion. And in my dream, he is locked in a room and forced to watch for all of eternity with no commercials, the Hallmark Channel. And a voice as loud as thunder was, John Boehner, you violated the rules of heaven, and this is your punishment for all of eternity. 
And then I see Marco Rubio, and Marco had broken into Mary Magdalene's apartment and stole those high heel boots that he wore when he was running for president to make himself look taller. And then on the way out of the apartment, he steals a case of Pellegrino sparkling water in case he's ever asked to give a response to the State of the Union again. And for those of you who remember that little, you may have forgotten that sip of water he took on national television, but God has not. In any event, Marco was chained to Roseanne Barr with a five-foot-long chain and a voice as loud as thunder as Marco Rubio, you have violated the rules of heaven, and this is your punishment for all of eternity. And this is where I get emotional. Lindsey Graham has been a friend for 25 years. He comes over uh, lots of Sunday afternoons and plays, uh, plays golf with my son and me after church for my son and me. I don't know whether it is after church for Lindsay or not. I think Lindsay is a lifetime member of Bedside Baptist with the Reverend E.Z. Pillow in Seneca, South Carolina. But nonetheless, I've known him for a long time, and he's a friend, and I do get emotional because in my dream, he was chained to the former supermodel, Cindy Crawford. And in a voice as loud as thunder, I heard, Cindy Crawford, you have violated the rules of heaven. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our country is celebrating Independence Day in less than a week. And I want to talk about Independence Day. But I don't want to talk about our country's Independence Day. I want to talk about another Independence Day. Yours. Have you had an Independence Day? Do you want one? Do you know how to get it? Life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, have you ever, I mean, that's one of those words, Ben and I were talking this afternoon about these words we use that we never really stop to ask, what does that word mean in its entire fulsome self? I mean, we use words like life, but have you ever stopped and just thought, what all does that word mean? encompass. What does that word mean? Surely it's more than just a biological state. What does the word life mean, and, and why was it listed first? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I learned a lot about life in the job that Dr. Young referenced, not Congress, in a courtroom. You can learn a lot about life surrounded by the alternative. I was a homicide prosecutor. Death is very life-affirming. There is no appeal from death. There is no 
compromising with death. There is no retreat from death. Whatever the last thing you said to the person you love the most is just going to have to suffice for all of time. Whatever you wanted to do but never got around to doing will just simply never be done. There is a finality with death, and that finality should instruct how we view life. The case that I handled that taught me the most about life was a 10-year-old girl confined to a wheelchair who couldn't talk, she couldn't walk, she couldn't feed herself. She was confined to a wheelchair the entire 10 years of her sweet, precious, beautiful life until it was taken from her by her mother's boyfriend. Never walked, never talked, she just sat in her wheelchair and smiled. So I would be asked from time to time when I had visitors to my office in Washington, I see the picture of your family. Who is the little girl in the wheelchair beside the picture of your family? Because that is the only other picture that was on my desk for the eight years I was in Washington. I wanted a constant, vivid reminder of the sanctity, the primacy, the fundamentality of life. And if that child could have a smile on her face, that is not an existence we would choose for ourselves. It is not an existence we would choose for anyone that we cared about, but that's how she was made. That was the existence that she was given. Life. But I don't want you to just think about life as some esoteric concept. I want you to think about it with more granularity, more particularity. In other words, what have you done with your life? This 10-year-old girl on my desk was not given a beautiful canvas upon which to write a long life. She was not given the most vivid colors in the palette upon which to paint the story of her life. What have you done with this gift of life? You know, life is wonderful to talk about, and, and philosophers do it, and, and, and authors do it. It's mentioned in not only the Declaration of Independence, but if you look at our Constitution, no person shall be de denied life without due process. You look in Scripture, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You even look at philosophy, and a philosopher named Albert Camus, who was not known for his optimism. He was not known for having a sunny, rosy view of life. In fact, he spent most, most, most of his 
career kind of struggling with whether or not life was worth it. But even that noted absurdist said, in the middle of winter, I find within myself an invincible summer. Dostoevsky, who is my favorite author in the book Crime and Punishment, tells the story of this man confined to a cast iron chair. And there is nothingness to his right and nothingness to his left and nothingness in front of him and nothingness behind him. And he is confined to this cast iron chair for a thousand years. And Dostoevsky writes, it is better to live like that than to not live. What have you done with this gift of life? What will your legacy be? And the challenge for me, and I will speak to myself, is with whatever time I have left, how much room is left on the canvas of my life? How much more can I write before the paint dries up and the canvas is full? It's your Independence Day we're talking about. I'm not talking about July the 4th, 1776. I'm talking about your Independence Day. And it begins with you being given the gift of life. And what will you do with it? Liberty. That's another one we can probably define. You, know, you can go with the synonyms, freedom. And then if I were to push you, you may, you may say, well, it's affirmative. The freedom to do certain things. The freedom to speak. The freedom to assemble. The freedom to worship. And to be sure, there is an affirmative part of liberty or freedom. And sometimes I like to say, well, if I'm going to define something, let me figure out what it's not. And the first thing that comes to my mind as not freedom is confinement, restriction. And then I think, well, it, that can't be true. Because as soon as I say that, I think of the, of the POWs who found liberty and freedom even in that existence. I think of people like Mia Widner who were confined to a wheelchair either because of injury or illness, and they found freedom and liberation. So you can't be physically restrained and physically confined. And then my mind immediately meant, went to the ultimate confinement. The ultimate confinement, the ultimate anti-freedom, anti-liberty. Prison. And scattered throughout the pages of the Bible are person after person after person who even in prison found freedom and liberty, whether it's Joseph, Samson, who you could argue did more good in prison than he did when he was running the countryside in, Ju in Judah. Daniel, Peter, Paul, Jeremiah. So it's got to be more than just physical freedom. So how do you define Liberty, what does it mean to you? If this is your Independence Day and you've been gifted life, 
and you've been gifted liberty. What will you do with your liberty? I can tell you if anyone ever says to you that prisons are country clubs or not that bad, you may rest assured they have never been. It is the coldest, starkest place I ever visited as a prosecutor. It's just cold and stark. But prisons aren't just concrete and steel and razor wire. You can be free like Martin Luther King Jr. or Dietrich Bonhoeffer even while you are in prison. Or you can be confined and restricted even though you are walking around free as a bird. Prison is not just a physical structure. Prison is prison. So if you're contemplating your own version of your Independence Day, then here's the very personal question I have for you. We've got famous prisons in this country, Florence, which some people call Supermax, Leavenworth, Rikers. They're famous prisons in literature. The Chateau d'If from the Count of Monte Cristo. There's Shawshank Prison from Shawshank Redemption. My question for you is, what is the name of your prison? If you're going to seriously contemplate having an Independence Day of your own where you can look back and say, that is the day that I began to appreciate this gift of life. That is the day that I refused to be confined and restricted. Then you need to have a conversation, as I have had, within the quietness of your own soul. What is the name of your prison? Pride is a prison. It's the first sin. It may well be the last sin, and it's probably going to be the sin committed most in between. It's a prison. Guilt is a prison. Substance abuse is a prison, and it is hard to escape from that prison. I know it is hard. It is hard to escape, but it's a prison. Racism is a prison. Even as I was reading the words of Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. How incredible would it have been if our country had actually followed that? How incredible would it have been if our country had declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights? How much pain and sorrow and strife could this country have saved if that had been our foundational statement? 
Racism is a prison. Sexism is a prison. Anger is a prison. When I was a teenager, I went to see Dr. Young. We had a pastoral counselor. It was kind of new back then. That was someone that your family could go to or couples could go to, but we had a, we had a pastoral counselor. But when I was a teenager, I went. I was probably made to go now that I think about it a little more carefully. I don't think I volunteered. But I remember that conversation with that pastoral counselor like it was yesterday. You know, you see these images from movies about folks who go see psychologists or counselors, and the first question is, how are you feeling today, or what can I help you with? That was not his first question. His first question was, why are you so angry? And I didn't know, and I don't know. I have nothing to be angry about. I had great parents. They loved me. Not as much as my three sisters, but they loved me. I didn't want for anything. But sometimes that's the nature of prison. It doesn't make sense. Prison doesn't always make sense. Anger is a prison. Doubt is a prison, which is why I am so happy that Dr. Ben Young wrote a book on doubt because it takes a lot of faith to write a book on doubt. Doubt can be a prison. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And that's one that I struggle with. Cynicism can be a prison. Skepticism can be a prison. What is the name of your prison? And are you tired of being there? Are you ready to be free? I would love to tell you in fact, I told Ben this afternoon, I said, your dad's going to be mad at me. My theology is going to be, going to be wrong tonight. Your father's going to be disappointed in me. And ben said, well, you, that's just a chance you're going to have to take. Go ahead and tell the truth. I would love to tell you that God came down and unlocked the door of that prison called anger. But he gave the keys to a five-foot, four-inch brunette with the most beautiful blue eyes I have ever seen in my life and the most radiant smile I have ever seen in my life. And he's let me live with her for 31 years. Sometimes he gives the keys to other people to let you out of the prison. 
what is the name of the prison that has you? And are you tired of being confined and restricted? The sentence has been served. It's been served. And I get it. There is a certain familiarity. There's a scene from, from the movie based on the novel Shawshank Redemption where one of the prisoners completes his sentence. His debt to society has been paid. And he just can't adapt. He's so used to the confinement. He's so used to the restrictions. He's so used to having his liberty curtailed. He just can't function. Prison can seem familiar. You can be reluctant to want to break out. And it is true. There are people that have done remarkable things while confined. And the Bible is full of them. But when I think of Samson and all he accomplished as he pushed those pillars down and killed more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life, I don't celebrate that as much as I lament what could have been. What could have been had he just found the liberty and the freedom without the prison. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is one of those words that we think we know the definition to, and I have absolutely, despite the amount of gray hair I have, I have no idea what Thomas Jefferson was thinking when he wrote Pursuit of Happiness. We missed each other in high school. He finished a couple years before I did. I don't know what he meant. I know what other smart people think he meant. But this isn't his Independence Day. This is yours. The Pursuit of Happiness. I would encourage you to substitute a word for happiness. I would encourage you, as you construct your own day of independence, to choose life, liberty, and the pursuit of significance. Happiness can be joy, it can be contentment, it can be laughter. I would still encourage you to choose significance. And you may say, well, what does that mean? And I look back on the people that I have known in life who are the most content, who are the most full of joy, who radiate the teachings of Christ the most, and they all have one thing in common. They spend more time thinking about others than they do themselves. My wife is at the top of that list. She is genuinely the happiest person that I know. She's just full of joy and contentment. And she loves doing things for other people, which is great because I love it when she does things for me. So we're both happy. 
significance. I was leaving D.C. one Friday. Couldn't wait to get out. Sitting at Reagan National. Looking up at the board, all the flights were being delayed. This endless stream of thunderstorms was coming through. And I'm miserable. I mean, I don't have anything to be miserable about, but remember I told you I was in a prison called Anger, and from time to time I can still see the grounds of that prison. So I was sitting there and just thinking, you know, I'm going to be stuck at the airport. And I look over there and I see two nuns that are looking up at the board. And they're looking up at the board longer than it takes to just see my flights being canceled. They're looking at the board long enough to, like, memorize the board. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, Trey, don't scare them. Don't walk up to two nuns with your crazy hair. You're going to scare them. And then I got my wife's voice in my ear saying, go see if you can help them. Go see if you can help them. Well, okay. So I walk up. One speaks a little bit of English. The other one speaks no English. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, I tried. I tried. I mean, I get some credit for trying. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see a colleague named Joey Kennedy from Massachusetts, and I remember that Joey did a stint in the Peace Corps in a Spanish-speaking country. And so I say, Joey, will you come over here? I'm trying to ask these two nuns, is there anything I can do to help? And he does a beautiful, masterful job of communicating with them. And the sum and substance of it all is they were trying to get to Houston so they could go to Argentina. That's where they were headed, Argentina. Well, they're not going anywhere. There are no flights taking off. So then I think, well, should I rent a car and drive these two nuns to Charlotte? And I'm picturing that in my head. Me, for 10 hours, in a car, with two nuns. And my wife listens to contemporary Christian music, and I tell her that's great, that's the New Testament. I listen to country and hip-hop because that's the Old Testament. That's people who made a lot of mistakes, and they're trying to do better, but something always seems to keep that from happening. So we both listen to religious music, but I'm not thinking that these two nuns are going to let me listen to country or hip-hop music for 10 hours. And Dr. Young was good enough yesterday to help me limit my vocabulary, which sometimes can be too expansive, although all the words I use are in the Bible. They're not in the Bible in the way in which I use them. So I'm thinking, how am I going to survive a 10-hour drive with two nuns and do nothing wrong? So thank the Lord, there was an announcement, yeah, the flight's going to be delayed. It's going to be delayed three hours, but we expect this flight to go to Charlotte. So I get their flights moved to Charlotte, and we go to Charlotte together. And I walk them from the gate over to find a flight to Houston, and they're going to have to spend the night in Houston, but ultimately they're going to get to Argentina, and that's, that's good. That's good. And I was struck the entire day 
by how contented they both were. They're in another country, no prospects of getting where they want to go, wearing the same thing they wore yesterday and they're going to wear it again tomorrow. It didn't look like they had a lot of money. I didn't ask them, but they certainly weren't eating and they weren't going into the newsstand, and yet they had the most contented looks on their face. Well, I can't leave well enough alone. We exchanged emails, and I got back to D.C., and several months later, I got an invitation to visit them at the convent where they were working in Virginia. Wow. So I go, and I walk in, and the first thing I notice is the first thing y'all would have noticed. Where are the televisions? There are no televisions here. How do, what, where do you watch sports? So I, did, I didn't want to say that. I said, what do you all do for fun? And they said, we pray. Okay. Is that it? That's it? They go to church every day. I'm still mad about my dad making me go on Sunday nights when we were little because I missed the Cowboys game. They go every single day. So then I said, do you ever watch movies? Oh, yes, yes, we watched one the other night. It's a movie I have never heard of before in my life. It's a movie that is so good and so pure and so uninteresting, the Hallmark Channel wouldn't even show it. And they still have this contentment, this joy. They literally spend their days praying for other people. Their pursuit of happiness. How are you pursuing that? How are you pursuing a life of significance? Our country has a date. It'll be next Saturday. We set aside to celebrate where we came from, what we aspire to, what we want to be as we continually seek to perfect this union. I want you to have a great next Saturday. But between now and Saturday, I want you to ask yourself, do you have your own Independence Day. Is there a day you can point to and say, that is the day I acknowledge the gift of my life and the gifts and the talents that I have been given? That is the day that I said I am no longer going to serve in any prison constructed by me or anyone else. That is the day that I accepted that I have been pardoned Someone else has already served the sentence for me. I was thinking last week, how would I give you a roadmap if you want to lead a life of significance, of contentment, of joy? And it's been given. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And if you want more detail, 
If you say that's, that's high-minded, I want something with a little more particularity, I'm going to give you that also. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the modest. Blessed are they who mourn or feel empathy or connection with others. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. If you are looking for someone to help escape whatever confines and bounds you, and you are looking for someone that will point you toward a life of contentment and significance and therefore happiness as we should define it, then I would encourage you to get to know the person who uttered those blesseds are, the person who served the sentence already for which you may still be serving, the person that can unlock whatever prison you find yourself in, 